welcome to episode 14 of the Fire Safety Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated fire industry. My name's Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Fire Safety Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the Fire Safety Event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 27th, 28th and 29th of April 2021. To register for the show, visit www.firesafetyevent.com. As always, I'm joined on the Fire Safety Matters podcast by my colleague Mark Sennett, the CEO at Western Business Media. Good morning, Mark. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm great, thanks, Brian. How are you? Very well indeed, thanks, Mark. Just starting work on the December edition of the magazine now. Well, it, it never gets quiet, and you've got some really great news for us in this edition of the podcast to cover. Long-time listeners will know we always cover the main news stories up first here on the FSM podcast. But if you can't wait a fortnight to get this podcast, you can see all the latest news on our website, which is www fsmatters.com and there's latest news prosecutions and products and services available there but it's also worth going so you can sign up for free to receive four copies of the magazine a year for free because we do four issues a year or you can go onto our webinars tab and listen to any of our webinars for free and they're all cpd accredited so you can also go there to sign up to our weekly e-newsletter so you can get all the latest news stories sent straight to your inbox so lots to go and see there and sign up for if you want to and that's just www.fsmatters.com but as i said brian there's some really big news stories you want to cover this week so let's um get straight into it what's the main story you want to cover up first yes mark the major news at present is the long anticipated setting the bar report that's now been issued with the final report of the competent steering group for building a safer future developing on the interim raising the bar document itself issued in august last year the report is testament to the unified determination of myriad organisations to do everything they can to improve building safety and ensure that residents feel safe in the homes that they occupy. The proposed overarching system of competence set out in the report is made up of four key strands, Mark. These are as follows. A new competence committee that will sit within the building safety regulators ambit at the health and safety executive. A national suite of competence standards, including new sector-specific frameworks developed by 12 dedicated working groups, arrangements for independent assessment and reassessment against the competence standards themselves, and a mechanism to ensure that those assessing and certifying people against the standards have appropriate levels of oversight to do so. The competence steering group is recommending that all individuals whose work on high-risk buildings is likely to materially affect safety outcomes or who work unsupervised on these buildings should meet the skills, knowledge, experience and behaviour set out in the competence frameworks developed by the industry itself. The Competence Steering Group has worked closely with the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government. Some of the report's key recommendations have already been adopted, including the proposal for a committee on industry competence as set out in the draft Building Safety Bill itself. The Building Safety legislation will take time to be enacted and implemented, as will the suite of national standards which will also need to be developed through due process. In its widest context, Mark, the industry simply cannot stand still and wait for these things to happen, though. It must continue the momentum towards implementing change without any delay. This belief resonates with Dame Judith Hackett's ongoing demand that the industry should not wait to be told what to do and must improve its working practices in anticipation of the forthcoming changes. For its part, BAFE is proud to have been involved in the steering group process that's realised the report itself. Chris Auger, BAFE's Director of Schemes, served as Secretary of Working Group 2, concentrating on installers, and alongside BAFE CEO Stephen Adams as Joint Secretary of Working Group 4, focused on fire risk assessors. BAFE strongly believes that UCAS accredited third-party certification continues to be the best evidence of competency for organisations delivering a specific service in the fire safety sector. Working Group 2 has recommended that the industry should adopt a framework for all the installer sectors working on in-scope buildings that can be applied to other project types. This will consist of accredited third-party certification of companies and qualifications or other requirements for individuals. On that last note, Mark, the Setting the Bar report states, and I quote, In further developing proposals for competence assessment, the Competency Steering Group has agreed a principles-based approach in determining the extent that third-party assessment of individuals should be required of persons working on high-risk buildings in the future. There is absolute agreement that everyone working on in-scope buildings must do so within a system of competence assessment and management to ensure they are competent to deliver safe outcomes. Competence Steering Group Chair Graham Watts, the CEO of the Construction Industry Council, has said, There's no time to lose in casting aside the substandard practices that have shamed the industry. In this document, we've set a new bar and we would urge all those working in life-critical disciplines to attain these high levels of competence. Only then can we rebuild the trust of those who occupy and live in the buildings we design, construct and manage. I don't think anyone would argue with that particular statement, Mark. No, I mean, this, this is massive news. I mean, we've known it's been coming, Brian. We've known that this um, report was going to come out ever since Dame Judith Hackett's independent review of fire safety. 
But it takes some effort to get it to this stage, Brian. Over 150 organisations involved in this. Now, one thing I had somebody from the sector say to me they were concerned about was they were concerned that many different people from the fire sector struggle to get one message that they can all adhere to and agree on and it could potentially leave the fire sector behind in terms of helping set the own agenda in terms of competency and standards moving forwards. Well that's not been the case here. You know, huge credit to Stephen Adams and Chris Auger at BAFE. You know, they've particularly driven this. I mean, I think we've talked about this a lot, Brian. I completely agree with Stephen that you need third party accreditation for people doing fire safety work it's massively important people that carry out fire safety work need to do it to a certain standard need to prove their competence to make sure they're installing products and systems that are safe and fit for purpose it's as simple and straightforward as that you you get it with corgi in the past and now the gas safe register you know people are competent to carry out gas safety work and if they're not and you haven't checked it then they shouldn't be doing the work why is fire safety any different and we have this conversation time and time again Brian and actually you know this this new report is really going to set the standard for that and I think when you go to your website fire safety matters website you'll see the amount of people from the fire sector who have come out in support of this report and it's really going to move things forward is exactly what Dame Judith wanted to see happen the industry really lead it and as I said huge credit to BAFE and Stephen Adams in particular and Chris Auger for really pushing this forward that under no circumstances could we say this is anything but positive could we Brian? Absolutely, Mark. This is huge news for the industry. So another thing that's we talk about long lasting campaigns and, and in the one that we've just talked about, obviously competency is the buzzword in the fire sector at the moment. And we'll talk about that with our first guest, Colin Todd, later on in this podcast. But another thing that's long been talked about in the fire sector is the need for suppression systems in various different buildings. So sprinklers, for example. And the National Fire Chiefs Council has reiterated their call for schools need to have sprinklers installed in in the wake of some devastating fires in schools in Derbyshire. The NFCC has again called for all schools to be fitted with sprinkler systems following the devastating loss of two schools in Derbyshire. The buildings serving St Mary's Primary School in Darley Abbey and at the Ravensdale Infant School in Michelover didn't have sprinklers installed. Had sprinklers been in place, it's likely that the damage suffered in both locations could have been reduced quite substantially. So give a bit more background on both these incidents for those of you that are interesting. On the 3rd of October at 5.24am, firefighters were called to attend the fire at St Mary's Primary School in Derbyshire, which is around one and a half miles from the city centre. Fire engines from Nottingham Road, Ascot Drive, Kingsway and Duffield, plus two engines from Alfredton attended the scene. Despite the best efforts of fire crews and attendants, the Catholic school was totally destroyed. A subsequent fire investigation into the incident has concluded that the most probable cause was again a deliberate ignition. Then, on the 5th of October, at 1.38am, firefighters were called to attend the Ravensdale Infant School on Devonshire Drive in Michelover. Twelve fire engines and two aerial ladder platforms from across Derbyshire were in attendance at the height of the blaze. Fire crews worked swiftly and diligently to control the blaze, but sadly, large parts of the building suffered extensive damage. Again, an investigation into the cause of the blaze has concluded that it was likely it was deliberately started. So the NFCC has been calling for sprinklers to be installed in schools for a number of years now. Every year there are around 1,500 fires in schools across the UK, which disrupts the education of approximately 90,000 students. The closure of a school also exerts substantial social and economic impact on local communities. According to figures released by the Association of British Insurers, ABI, the most expensive school fires cost somewhere in the region of £2.8 million to address. Over a four-year period, an average of 24 large lost school fires have occurred every year, which totals £67.2 million to sort out. I mean, shocking statistics here, Brian. It's massively expensive to protect any building or rebuild any building from a total loss. And unlike businesses, where often a total loss fire means the closure of businesses, there is a need for education for children. I think that's more prevalent than ever in the wake of the COVID lockdown, just how important that uh, school education is. 
What I'd say here, Brian, and I do completely agree with NSCC that sprinklers should be mandatory in schools. As a parent to two nine-year-olds, I find it horrifying the thought that sprinklers aren't necessarily in the school that they're in or any other school. It's just something that we should expect. But what I would relate this to, Brian, is when I was working at the Fire Protection Association, I actually went to their testing laboratory in in, uh, Blockley, which is near their main site, and they recreated a total loss fire and I think it was from the quite famous fire from where a a tissue factory a toilet roll factory went up in a complete blaze all the toilet roll burned and it was a complete total loss but there were no sprinklers in that premises and this test which was done for insurers was to see what would have happened if a suppression system had been in place so there I am in my PPE with a mask and everything and I can fortunately say it's the only time I've been in a major fire and unfortunately it was very well protected. It was a truly eye-opening experience. Within minutes I couldn't see the hand in front of my face because of the smoke plumes that were going there. But then when the sprinkler system kicked in it almost instantly put out the flames and what we learned from the learnings that was had a suppression system been in place it wouldn't have been a total loss fire for the building so let's relate that back to what we're just talking about brian it's suggested in both of these cases that of course there would have been fire damage to these buildings if suppression systems had been in place but a total loss probably not so not only would it be a massive cost saving but it would also mean the school could be up and operational a lot sooner than that situation. So I completely support the NFCC's view on this, and it's something that I want to see come in as soon as possible. I don't know if you've got anything else you want to add to the story, Brian. Well, you mentioned statistics there, Mark. According to figures issued recently by the Association of British Insurers, the most expensive school fires cost somewhere in the region of £2.8 million to address. Over a four-year period, in fact, an average of 24 large lost school fires have occurred every year, totalling £67.2 million in terms of remediation monies. Now, National Fire Chiefs Council Chair Roy Wilshire has urged the government to ensure legislation in England is the same as it is in Scotland and Wales, where it's mandatory for sprinkler systems to be fitted in all new and refurbished school buildings. Wilshire has commented, and I quote, England is lagging behind Scotland and Wales when it comes to introducing legislation to fit sprinklers in school buildings. The NFCC believes that all new schools, and indeed those undergoing refurbishment, should have automatic fire suppression systems fitted into them. In last year's response to the technical review of Building Bulletin 100, designed for fire safety in schools, the NFCC duly highlighted the fact that the percentage figure of new build schools being fitted with sprinklers may have fallen from 70% down to as low as 15% mark. Uh, Roy Walsher has continued, We have a responsibility to ensure buildings are safer and sprinklers in schools is clearly a move in the right direction. Children across the UK have had their education severely disrupted this year due to the pandemic. A fire in a school will only make this worse, placing additional pressures on the education service and parents alike. Further, Wilshire, who appeared as a guest on episode 9 of the Fire Safety Matters podcast, also pointed out that schools are important community assets which need to be protected. He's emphasised the importance of ensuring fire safety remains a key priority during the pandemic and to make it part of COVID-19 secure planning, along with revisited escape routes and fire drills. Uh, From my own perspective, Mark, I can't quite believe we have a situation where sprinklers are not being mandated. Now, as you know, I completely agree with you, Brian. It's something that I think people listening to this outside of the fire sector would be genuinely shocked by that information. I think they just assume that sprinklers are in schools and you would hope that England would follow the lead of the other home nations on this. So anyway, Brian, moving on, who have you got for our first guest this week? Our first guest on episode 14 of the Fire Safety Matters podcast is a hugely popular figure in the fire safety community. Colin Todd is Managing Director of CS Todd & Associates, the independent consulting practice specialising in fire safety, fire protection and fire engineering projects. Colin founded the Farnham-based business back in 1982. His day-to-day responsibilities include the overall running of the practice, technical support to the consultancy team, ensuring the ongoing competency of that team, quality assurance of client deliverables, and also client liaison. Colin is an MBE and graduated from the University of Edinburgh in 1974 with a bachelor's degree in physics. He then worked for both Unilever and the Fire Officers Committee before becoming a specialist technical advisor at Bowering Risk Management. Late last week, I interviewed Colin to find out the latest progressions in terms of standards and guidance affecting the fire safety sector. But first, he focuses on exactly how changes are directly impacting consultants.
There's a great deal happening in the fire sector world at the moment, Colin. As the principal of one of the country's leading practices, how do you feel consultants are coping with monitoring all of the changes taking place? And also, how is the profession in general managing these developments, do you feel? Uh, I think you make a very good point, Brian. Uh, I think it's actually very difficult uh, for people because we're virtually running to stand still. Uh, there's a lot of confusion about the changes coming along. If we think of the the three legislative changes that we will be faced with, they, they fall into three tranches. There's the new fire safety bill. Uh, hot on its heels will be the secondary legislation that implements the recommendations of the phase one report of the public inquiry into the Grenfell fire. Uh, and then we'll, we'll have the very massive change uh, brought about by the building uh, safety bill. And, and we're all getting a bit sort of consultation out, really, uh, that uh, we're, we're faced with these consultations, which we try to keep abreast with. The consultation alone on the new secondary legislation uh, has 150 questions. And wearing my hat uh, as a board member of the Fire Industry Association, we put together a special interest group to respond to the, the Home Office consultation. And that was two full days for a team of people uh, just working on that, that one consultation. But within my own practice, uh, part of my role is to keep the other consultants uh, up to date. So that's bad enough. But for I'm very sympathetic, really, for small practices and uh, one-man companies because there's a lot of work out there at the moment. They're all under pressure, but they're all having to, as I said, run to stand still to keep up with the, the changes in the legislation. And it almost gives a new meaning to the term CPD. Uh, and that's where uh, online sources such as your own is, is really very helpful to the profession uh, by keeping people up to date with, with short overviews by experts. Again, wearing my, my FIA hat, we, we put on CPD sessions for fire risk assessors, specifically targeting fire risk assessors, because much as we are all sympathetic to the difficulties of keeping up to date, wearing yet another hat as chairman of the Institution of Fire Engineers panel that registers fire risk assessors as competent, we are very insistent uh, on the extent to which people should be carrying out CPD. So interesting times, a bit worrying that it's all happening a little bit too quickly uh, and it's all a bit like marriage, uh, changes in legislation. You, you do it too quickly and you repent at leisure. Uh, and, and you don't always see the unintended consequences. But we are where we are, uh, and the the profession will ultimately cope with it. But it's, it's hard work at the moment. Now, keeping abreast of changes in the fire sector is, of course, part of competence, Colin, which is a subject that everyone's talking about in the wake of publication of the draft fire safety bill, for example. On that note, there are some important changes happening soon in terms of the IFE's registration of competent fire risk assessors. Can you tell us about that detail, please, Colin? Yes, yeah, sure. This emanates really from the work of Working Group 4, uh, one of the uh, industry response group uh, working groups, uh, that, that, uh, the role of which is to respond to uh, the, the Hackett uh, raising the bar report. Uh, and it, it's become clear that it's fine to have registers, but there is a need really for independent verification uh, of the validity of these registers and, and the work that they, they carry out in their registration activities. And from an IFE perspective, I suppose we had two options. Uh, one would be that uh, our registration should be uh, third party uh, accredited by UCAS, or we could go down the route of alignment with the Engineering Council, because the IFE is, of course, uh, a licensed body uh, and a licensed engineering institution licensed by the Engineering Council. And it is that latter route that we're going down. Uh, and what the IFE register will become is what is known as a contextualised register. Uh, what that means, the bottom line is this, uh, that those who are registered by the IFE, and we've got 250 such people at the moment, uh, will ultimately have to also be registered, not just as fire risk assessors, but as qualified engineers registered by the IFE at one of the three levels at which we're licensed to register engineers. 
EngTech, iEng or CEng. And we believe that the bulk of people on our register should have not too much difficulty in registering as engineering technicians. And that, that's our ultimate goal. Uh, we're starting to move down that road. Um, the, it's a peer review register. So we've started off by ensuring that the panel, the members of the panel that run the register, and then ultimately our interviewers, our reviewers who review applications, that they themselves will all be registered at at least Eng tech level. And we're, we're well on with, with that. We hope to be there uh, by the, the end of the year or just maybe early into the, the new year. And then ultimately, uh, we will have a register uh, of individuals who are as competent to carry out fire risk assessments, but are, are qualified engineers registered by the IFE. We're, we're going to try and make that as painless for existing registrants and for new registrants as possible. Uh, and we haven't really uh, finalised the details yet, but that's something we're, we're working on uh, very hard at the moment. As a practitioner yourself, you're very much involved in the standards and guidance documents that support legislation and assist the fire sector in general. What work have you been doing in this area of late? So I think one of the, the first standards with which I became involved uh, post-Grenfell was BS 8629 last year. Uh, we had the contract to write that new code of practice for evacuation alert systems. That was uh, a really urgently required standard and, and British Standards Institution did a very good job in that respect because it was needed to support the changes to the Building Scotland Regulations technical handbooks, uh, which now, uh, well, since last October, have, have specified that any new high-rise blocks of the flats uh, in Scotland should have an evacuation alert system by which the Fire and Rescue Service can initiate an evacuation alert signal in some or all flats. So, so that's one of the first uh, activities uh, with which I became involved uh, in the, in the post-Grenfell uh, activities. Uh, then uh, currently we're contracted by the Home Office to produce a whole tranche of guidance that will support the changes to legislation. Uh, so, uh, in effect, at the moment, we're contracted to produce uh, six different guides, revise or produce uh, new uh, guides uh, within that six. So, um, the, we're revising uh, the little simple guide, uh, making your premises safe from fire, uh, and at the moment, we plan to turn that into three little uh, starter guides for small business premises, for small blocks of flats, and for small premises in which people sleep. Uh, so that's the, the first revision that we're doing uh, for the Home Office. Uh, we're also revising their downloadable uh, guide to fire risk assessment, the, the fire risk assessment checklist that small businesses can download uh, at the moment, and we're going to update that. Uh, we're contracted also by the Home Office to revise the, the, what was the old CLG guidance note number one on enforcement of the fire safety order. So we'll be working closely with NFCC on that. Um, and the, the, the big job we have to do is to revise the purpose-built flats guide, which is currently hosted by the local government association, but, but will be taken on by the Home Office and, and we're, we're revising that for them. So that's four major revisions, but we're also contracted to write a new guide uh, for the responsible person on their legal duties under the fire safety order as it will be amended um, and a guide on the new secondary legislation that I've already mentioned that is in effect government's response to the phase one recommendations of the Grenfell Tower Public Inquiry. So quite a bit of work there, uh, under quite a bit of pressure, but we're, we're plowing on with that. We're very interested in comments from the public and perhaps uh, through your medium, I, I might make an appeal to members of the public to contact us with any comments they have, particularly on the, the purpose-built flats guide as it stands or the keeping your premises safe from fire guide, the, the small guide for, for small businesses. We've set up a special email address for the public uh, and it's consultation at cstod.co.uk, consultation at cstod.co.uk.
www.ncbi.co.uk. And we're very interested in any comments from the public. We're, we're, we're carrying out our own consultation with major stakeholders, but we don't want to limit the consultation to that. So anyone who has comments, uh, particularly perhaps on the Purpose Built Flats Guide, we'd, we'd love to hear from them and we'll make sure their comments are taken on board in the, the redrafting that we're doing. Um, I'm also involved in the revision of PAS 79, uh, the, the guide to fire risk assessment has been turned into a, a full-blown code of practice, although it wasn't very far short of that uh, before. Uh, this was in response to a request from the housing sector, who not long after Grenfell said, look, could you not give us a template specific to housing and, and of course, particularly blocks of flats? Uh, that we could use to make sure that we're driven to carry out a suitable and sufficient fire risk assessment for blocks of flats. And we said, well, we can do better than giving you a template. Why don't we revise PAS 79? Uh, and that project kicked off at the beginning of the year. I'm very pleased to say that all through the COVID crisis, it has remained entirely on target. Uh, and come December, what will happen is that the existing PAS 79 2012 will become PAS 79 Part 1, which deals with non-housing premises, and PAS 79 Part 2, uh, which it will be specific to housing and give guidance to people on carrying out a fire risk assessment for housing premises and give them a template that they, they can actually work by. So. Um, that's, that's really quite important for the, the fire risk assessment community. But as you will be aware, Brian, the fire safety bill brings external wall uh, construction and cladding uh, into the scope of the fire safety order. Uh, and it will be necessary for RPs to ensure that risk assessments encompass external wall construction. Now, the sector, I think, is universally ad idem that the typical fire risk assessor does not have the competence to examine complex external wall construction and cladding. It's, it's effectively a new discipline that's being created by the changes in legislation. Uh, and there are all sorts of problems with that. Uh, who's going to do it? Who's competent to do it? How do they actually do it? Can they get professional indemnity insurance to do it? Because that's another issue. Uh, and in response to that, uh, government have funded BSI to produce a new publicly available specification. It, this will be PAS 9980. Uh, and we're contracted by uh, BSI to write that PAS. But as it's government funded, it will be a free download uh, when it's ultimately produced, probably around about the summer next year. Again, we're working very hard on that at the moment. We're not just doing it on our own as a practice. We're working with some other leading practices as a, a small uh, little consortium. Uh, and uh, that, that uh, publicly available specification will be a code of practice for what we will be describing as fire risk appraisal and assessment of external wall construction and cladding. And we think it solves a number of problems or will solve a number of problems at one stroke. It will tell people how to do it. Uh, that means the cohort of people who are willing and able to do it will increase. Uh, will the, the, the Fire Industry Association and other bodies will be able to train people to carry out these assessments. And hopefully the insurance industry will become a little calmer about ensuring consultants to carry these out because they'll be carrying them out uh, in accordance with a national standard. So again, a very important new uh, piece of work uh, funded by government, produced by BSI, that will support the, the changes brought about by the Fire Safety Bill. Quite right, there's a new standards you've mentioned, Colin, have arisen in the wake of the Grenfell Tower tragedy, of course. Obviously, other standards focus work continues in parallel. Are there any other changes that the readers of Fire Safety Matters should be aware of, Colin? Yes, it's a good point. We, we're all, as you said, quite rightly tied up in trying to make sure that we address all the issues that have fallen out from the Grenfell Terror disaster. Uh, but work in other standards carries on, of course. So 
uh, there's a, a change coming through to BS 589 Part 6, the British Standard for Domestic Fire Detection. Now, this was brought about by concerns in respect of the ability of domestic smoke alarms to rouse children from sleep. Uh, and, and we know that children are very difficult to rouse from sleep. If you've ever had a party in your house, Brian, uh, I've no doubt your children managed to, to sleep through the loud music uh, and the revelry. Uh, and it's difficult to, to rouse children, not just by smoke alarms, but by any alarm sounds. Uh, and that's now being recognised in BS 589 Part 6, which will require that users of domestic fire detection I'm pausing there by domestic fire detection. I mean, not just fire detection systems, but users of smoke alarms will need to be given advice. Uh, and that will include uh, advice within the instructions that come with smoke alarms that children might not be roused by uh, alarm signals. And there is a, a need to ensure they have a, a proper fire safety plan, which includes making sure uh, as soon as uh, a smoke alarm operates, that their children are roused from sleep. In, in parallel with that, the Fire Industry Association are currently carrying out uh, some research uh, on, on the subject, really to see whether in practice uh, there is an issue. Uh, it's the, the very happy statistic is that it's actually quite rare for children to die in fire. The, 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 the 2018-19 statistics show that uh, fire deaths per million population generally were 4.5 per million, but in the under 16 age group, it was 0.8 deaths per million. So we don't think there is a major problem in practice, but certainly it's something that we do feel needs further investigation. And, and as I say, the FIA are, are working on that. And we've, we've, we've also got some changes coming through to BS 7273 part four, uh, this was uh, an amendment that uh, I promoted because I became concerned about the number of cases that came to my attention of those living with dementia, particularly in care homes, going through fire doors, perhaps secured only by a uh, panic bar, and then ultimately falling to their death. And it wasn't just one or two incidents. There have been a number of, of cases of dementia sufferers passing through uh, fire doors uh, and, and ending up uh, injured uh, seriously or, or, or being killed. Uh, and so BS7273 Part 4 is going to draw to uh, the reader's attention the legitimacy of using electronic locking on fire doors in care homes, particularly those uh, catering for people who are living with dementia. Uh, and we've produced some new guidance in relation to the safeguards that should be incorporated, which might include, for example, different sighting of the traditional green brake glass unit so that it's put up a bit higher and not in the immediate uh, sight of uh, someone living with dementia uh, who simply comes to the door uh, and will not necessarily look up but the, the, the green brake glass will not be at the, the normal uh, mounting height and make it less likely that uh, dementia sufferers will, will come to harm from that. So again, small but quite important, Brian. And lastly, Colin, I know that you've been particularly busy this year during the lockdown period. As part of your work, you've been revising some of the industry-focused books that you actually currently author. How is that process coming along? Yeah, so uh, lockdown and, and my own personal shielding presented something of, of an opportunity, you might say. So uh, what I've done is I've revised the textbook that BSI publish uh, on BS 5839 Part 1. So uh, the, the textbook will now address the 2017 standard. And I revised uh, the, the book that I author on BS 5839 Part 6. So that's bang up to date uh, with the, the 2019 uh, version. Uh, I'm also contracted by BSI to revise another book I author, which is a more general fire safety book, uh, a comprehensive guide to, to fire safety. Can't do very much on that at the moment until the changes to legislation that we, we talked about uh, have 
the dust has kind of settled on them. So it'll probably be uh, next summer before really I can make uh, any significant progress with, with that guide. But it, it, it's in need of revision because of all the changes to legislation. So that's the, the next thing on my list of things to be done, as it were. Returning to the news now, and the National Security Inspectorate has become the first certification body to be awarded accreditation by the United Kingdom Accreditation Service for the evacuation alert system scheme incorporating the requirements of BAFE's all-new SP207 scheme. BAFE has developed the new scheme in response to a recommendation from the Grenfell Tower Phase 1 Inquiry Report, whereby new or existing blocks of flats with one or more storeys over 18 metres above ground level should be provided with evacuation alert systems. Such systems activated solely by the Fire and Rescue Services initiate evacuation alert signals in the event of a fire or other emergency. They save time in alerting occupants to evacuate and also enable the most critical areas for evacuation to be prioritised. Base scheme SP207 calls upon BS8629, the Code of Practice for the Design, Installation, Commissioning and Maintenance of Evacuation Alert Systems for use by Fire and Rescue Services in buildings containing flats which itself was published on the 30th of November last year. Given that SP207 is modular in nature, Mark, companies can gain certification from the NSI for one or more services they provide, i.e. design, installation, commissioning and or maintenance. Professional fire safety providers wishing to gain certification through the NSI have two approval options. One is gold, the other is silver, with gold available to those companies operating a quality management system in accordance with BSEN ISO 9001. Similar to an MOT, NSI-approved companies will issue an NSI-based certificate of competence for newly installed systems and on completion of scheduled maintenance visits every six months as evidence to enforcing authorities and insurers alike that systems are adequately installed and maintained. The NSI CEO Richard Jenkins has commented on this matter, Mark. He said, we're proud to be the first certification body to gain accreditation from UCAS for the new evacuation alert system scheme, having been involved throughout the scheme's inception and development. This accreditation demonstrates that the NSI's capability has been independently recognised by UCAS. BASE CEO Stephen Adams has responded by stating, in a Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government document published in May regarding fire safety measures in new high-rise blocks of flats, it was revealed that 92% of respondents believe approved document B should include a requirement for an evacuation alert system. With this level of demand, BAFE is confident that it has developed a quality scheme in SP207 to display evidence of competency for providing evacuation alert system at works. The ongoing message BAFE continues to stress here, Mark, is that fire safety is all about life safety. Put simply, the sooner people are made aware of an emergency and alerted to evacuate, using quality and well-maintained systems to do so, then so much the better. Now, the readers of Fire Safety Matters will be interested to learn that our recent webinar on evacuation alert systems, featuring input from Advanced and also the London Fire Brigade, is featured in great detail within the October edition of the magazine. Yeah, I mean, I think you touched on thing I want to say, Strather. We, we did do a webinar. In fact, it was our best attended webinar ever. We had two and a half thousand people sign up for it, Brian. And as you said, we did it with Amanda Hope from Advance, also Steve Norman, who's the Deputy Assistant Commissioner for London Fire Brigade. And it's particularly timely. We don't just cover fire safety. Fire safety is so broad. The evacuation side of things is, is something we've covered in great detail recently. And yes, obviously, that new code of practice... Um, BS8629 did come out in November so this is particularly timely and obviously evacuation has become one of the key agenda topics in the fire sector in the wake of the Grenfell Tower tragedy. I mean I could sit here all day and talk about um, buildings having a single staircase have (laughs) bigger issues in terms of evacuation because Grenfell I believe was one of those premises but evacuation in general can take multiple different approaches to getting people out safely. And we actually did another webinar, Brian, as you'll know. We did how dynamic signage can make any building safer. So that was a presentation and discussion around the impacts of the latest available dynamic signage and how it increases the safety factor and reduces total evacuation time. And that was based on a case study undertaken by FSEG from the University of Greenwich. Really, really good webinar presentation delivered by Alan Ward of Evaclite. 
Now, if you guys would like to listen to that, either of those webinars, either the one that we did with Advanced and London Fire Brigade on um, BS8629, or the Dynamic Signage one, all you need to do is go to our website, which is www.fsmatters.com. It's completely free to register to attend these. You get CPD certificate if you listen to it on demand as well. And all you need to do once you've gone to our website, fsmatters.com, is click on the webinars tab in the top navigation. So definitely, definitely well worth listening to because it's something that we've covered in quite some depth recently over recent months. And it's something that with the new code of practice in place is going to continue to be a focus. So yeah, good news all around what you shared there. And now I want to shift gears into our final news story of the day. And this certainly isn't good news. Now we we cover prosecutions a lot on our website. We don't always cover them here on the FSM podcast, but this is one I felt we just had to cover because it's as big a fine as I can remember. So a Cardiff care home operator has been fined £400,000 plus due to fire breaches that put residents at serious risk. Care directors have pleaded guilty to significant breaches of fire safety regulations at a residential property in South Wales, which could have potentially led to a large-scale tragedy. Farrington Care Homes Limited, who run multiple facilities across the UK, among them the Hillcroft Residential Care Home, located in Cardiff, was sentenced on the 10th of September 2020 at Cardiff Magistrates Court, following multiple inspections dating back to 2011 that were conducted by South Wales Fire and Rescue Service. The Hillcroft Residential Care Home, which plays host to 25 bedrooms, was found to be in breach of a number of fire safety regulations within the ambit of the Regulatory Reform Fire Safety Order 2005, which itself is in place to reduce the risk of deaths or serious injuries in the event of a fire. Over a number of years, extensions were granted to Farrington Care Home Limited to rectify the failings, but the requirements to comply with the fire safety order were not met which then resulted in this prosecution. The offences related to fire safety arrangements, including building structure fire protection to prevent the spread of fire and smoke, inadequate fire risk assessment, insufficient smoke alarms, inaccessible blocked fire escape routes, deficient emergency lighting, failure to conduct appropriate evacuation drills, lack of maintenance on critical escape routes, and substandard fire safety management. Despite multiple enforcement notices having been issued by South Wales Fire and Rescue Service, Farrington Care Homes Limited failed to undertake appropriate measures to comply with these notices. An enforcement notice is only served when the most severe fire safety failings are identified. Such notices must be complied with, and any failure to do so can and often does result in prosecution. So as I said, this is not good news in any way, shape or form, but I actually thought it was worth bringing this up for the simple reason I've long talked about this publicly and with Warren Spencer, who is obviously our resident fire safety expert, about the issues that our current levels of fines in the fire sector actually a true deterrent from people flouting fire safety regulations like the fire safety order. If you look at the Health and Safety Executive, which is obviously the regulator and enforcement agency for health and safety, you see hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of fines or million pounds fines, multi-million pound fines. You just don't see that in the fire sector. They're often quite small fines. And I've often discussed with Warren about whether the levels of fine are truly high enough to act as a deterrent to scare people into needing to comply with fire safety laws. And this particular case is as big a fine as I can remember, really, £400,000 plus. This is the kind of fine which I would say would act as a true deterrent. And it's good to see a serious levy put upon people who have clearly persistently flouted fire safety regulations after multiple inspections and breached enforcement notices. So this is a terrible story, but... The positive, in my mind, to it is the fact that it's a decent levy of a fine that's being imposed. So, Brian, I think you've got something you'd like to add to this. Yes, indeed, Mark. Despite multiple enforcement notices having been issued by the South Wales Fire and Rescue Service, Barrington Care Homes Limited failed to undertake appropriate measures to comply with those notices. An enforcement notice is only served when the most severe fire safety failings are identified. Such notices must be complied with. Any failure to do so can result in prosecution. In summing up on this case, presiding district judge Shoman Khan said, This is firmly in the category of high culpability. These are the most vulnerable members of our society. Each of them was put at risk. There was also a risk of a large-scale tragedy here. These are very serious offences. It's very difficult to imagine a more vulnerable class of individual. Two of the offences, in fact, were committed while the company was being investigated. 
Deutsche Telekom has ordered Farrington Care Homes Limited to pay the total sum of £432,944 within a time frame of 12 months. That figure includes surcharge and prosecution costs. Owen Jane, Head of Business Fire Safety at the South Wales Fire and Rescue Service, has explained the decision to prosecute businesses is never taken lightly. In this case, there was a serious risk to vulnerable residents, and that risk was attributed directly to the repeated failures to comply with enforcement notices. In conclusion, Jane observed, we are pleased that the presiding judge recognised the risks. The severity of the sentence reflects the seriousness with which the court views breaches of the fire safety regulations. So there's a very clear warning to all landlords here, Mark. They ignore enforcement notices at their peril. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a perfect segue now into our next segment. It's a recurring segment, which is obviously with Warren Spencer. Warren, as many of you know, has prosecuted more cases than anybody else under the fire safety order. And before I introduce Warren, actually, I think those of you who listened to the last episode of the Fire Safety Matters podcast will know about a joint venture that we're doing with Warren. We're actually putting on a half a day digital conference with Warren, and that is focusing around the fire safety bill. It actually takes place on the 3rd of December. And it's not just Warren, but it's also Joseph Hart, who is the leading barrister under the fire safety order. No one has prosecuted more cases as a barrister than Joseph. And James Aird from Blackhurst Bud Solicitors. This is a half-day conference starting from 10am. It's three hours in length. Every one of you that attends will get CPD for three hours for attending. So nobody else can offer you that from a virtual conference. And as I said, it will cover so much. It will discuss how the fire safety bills and also the building safety bills will affect the fire safety order. And this is really relevant to all of you because this is the first major updates to fire safety legislation that you need to comply with for many, many years. It will also cover the EWS1 form. So a lot to go over here. As I said, it takes place on the 3rd of December 2020 and it costs £99 plus VAT and a booking fee for all delegates. As I said, CPD for everyone that attends. Now, if you want to take part in this, we do want to make it as interactive as possible. So we'll be expecting your questions throughout this presentation. It really will be your chance to get key legal advice on the biggest change to fire safety legislation in a generation. So if you want to get more information or to sign up, all you need to do is go to the FSM website, which is fsmatters.com, and click on the webinars tab in the primary navigation. You will see it listed as legal update the new fire safety bill, and you can click to go in through there. So Without further ado, I'll introduce Warren. I sat down with Warren earlier today, and on the back of Fire Door Safety Week, we had a question in from one of you listeners that wanted to talk about who's responsible for maintaining fire doors. So I sat down with Warren earlier, and here's what he had to say. Morning, Warren. How are you? I'm good, thank you, Mark. How are you? Yeah, all good, all good. So, obviously, in this segment of the podcast, we try and get questions in from our listeners to pose to you. So, we had a question coming in about fire doors this week, Warren. As you probably know, it's Fire Door Safety Week a couple of weeks ago, so this is quite pertinent. So, the question that came in asked about who's responsible for maintaining fire doors, ensuring they're you know fully functional in leased premises. Is it the renter of the premises or is it the building owner? So this is a a common question um, and I hate to revert back to what contracts say, but they they always hold the answer. And if they're silent, which is usually the case, um, very often flat doors lead on to the main escape route and therefore they're a kind of shared responsibility. those who have some knowledge of the fire safety order would say, well, the flat door is part of the dwelling and therefore the fire safety order doesn't apply to uh, private dwellings, single private dwellings. Therefore, um, it's not covered. But that's wrong because if it if it's on the escape route, then it's important to the escape route and it's covered by the fire safety order. And the government have sought to clarify this with the new fire safety bill um, and, and clarify the status of flat doors within the legislation because I I think it probably wasn't clear but to answer your question more directly the flat owner will be a person with control over some part of the escape route i.e control over that flat door so the flat owner is a person with control um, and therefore could be liable if 
They've not got a proper fire door on their flat and they are required to do so. But again, we have to look at the legal documents. We have to look at the lease. If the lease says that the flat owner is responsible, the flat owner is responsible. There's a possible third person in addition to the owner who would usually be responsible for the um, common areas, and that is any management company. And again, their responsibilities would depend upon the management agreement between themselves and the owner. And very often that's further complicated by the fact that the management company may be a company that's made up of the residents themselves. Uh, and, and they've got to look after various um, aspects of the building via um, the, the um, management agreement, etc. But it's this confusion, Mark, that is, is what the government are trying to sort out with the draft uh, building um, safety bill and the fire safety bill uh, because of this lack of clarity as to who is responsible. But to answer your question in a fairly long-winded answer, it, it could be any one of those parties, or it could be all three. So nice, tenuous link for us right now. Obviously, we've joined forces, Fire Safety Matters, and you as your company, Blackhurst Bud, to do an online digital conference all on the new Fire Safety Bill, and also we'll cover parts of the Building Safety Bill. Can you tell us more about this, Warren? I know it takes place on the 3rd of December, 2020. So can you tell us more about who's involved and what it will cover? Yes, but I... I will, I will talk about my understanding of the new fire safety bill. What it does is it makes amendments to the existing fire safety order. Um, there's some deletions to uh, parts of the articles and there's some additions. And I'm going to talk about those additions and, and what they might mean uh, from a practical point of view. And obviously we've got a barrister and James Aird from your solicitors as well involved. Can you tell us more about what they'll cover? Yes, uh, Joseph Hart uh, is a barrister who has conducted over 50 uh, fire safety prosecutions uh, and, 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 and a number of uh, fatality cases. And Joe and I are going to be talking about sentencing and how the courts are approaching sentencing uh, at the present time. Uh, James will be talking about uh, touching upon what we've just looked at, which are leases and contracts, which should outline responsibilities in situations where there are more than one person with control over the buildings. Uh, and we're probably looking at the latest uh, figures and um, stats on fire safety prosecutions. So yeah, this all takes place on the 3rd of December 2020 and you can register up to attend this. Tickets are £99 plus VAT. Just go to the FSM website and click on the webinars tab. That is fsmatters.com and click on the tab saying webinars in the main navigation and then you'll see the Warren Spencer-led one in there where you can click on it and sign up. It's definitely worth coming to. It's CPD accredited, so you'll get three hours worth of CPD points for attending. And we're lucky. We've got the barrister with the most prosecutions under the fire safety order and the lawyer, Warren, with the most prosecutions under the fire safety order. So definitely a must attend. So if anybody wants to get in touch with you, Warren, if they've got any legal questions or need some advice, how can they get in touch with you or Blackhurst Bud? Well, there's the Fire Safety Law website, uh, www.firesafetylaw.co.uk. Um, there's, I'm on Twitter as at Fire Safety Law, and I'm on LinkedIn as well. We've got the Blackhurst Bud website, which has got all of my uh, firm's details as well. So we had a great question in today, and as I said, this segment of the podcast is all about you asking your questions to Warren. So if you'd like us to ask a question in the next episode, all you need to do is go on to Twitter or LinkedIn and use the hashtag FSMPodcast to ask your question and we'll endeavour to cover it. Warren, great to speak to you. We will see you next time. Thank you, Mark. Our final guest on this edition of the podcast is Mark Whiteley the UK and Ireland sales manager for Asicos Limited. The business is firmly focused on hazardous material storage and handling. It's also recognised as a leader in the field when it comes to the manufacture of EN14470 compliant and type-tested safety storage cabinets. Mark has been with the business for seven years now, having previously worked at Thermo Fisher Scientific on the sales of PPE and safety-related products. Raising awareness on legislation and guidelines is a key element of the storage equation, including the provision of training to staff, specifiers and design teams, establishing multiple ranges of solutions to satisfy health and safety requirements and also looking after insurers' expectations. During the podcast, Mark focuses his attentions on the dangerous substances and explosive atmospheres regulations and outlines their importance in terms of today's fire safety projects. (laughs) 
morning, Mark. How are you? Morning. Very well, thank you. Well, we've known each other a long time, and obviously I'm very, very familiar with the Secos brand. In fact, I've been out to your manufacturing plant, Germain headquarters in Germany, which is you know, a fantastic facility. But for those yeah. that aren't familiar with your company, can you tell us a bit more about Secos, please? Yeah, sure. I mean, Asikos are a worldwide supplier of uh, storage cabinets for hazardous materials. Um, we're based in uh, Grundau in Germany, uh, where every single product is produced to order. Um, and we supply the products worldwide. Um, the standard that our products are made to, uh, fortunately, is the highest standard that a customer can get in terms of production standards in the world. In the United Kingdom, we've been established here since 2007. Uh, we have a, a small but very experienced team of guys who understand the legislation. Um, and, you know, we try to exert influence with um, design projects, with architects. So as a business, we're not just trying to sell a product, we're providing a full service. And I think that's exactly what we do worldwide as well. And talking a bit more about your products, your products are very different from that of your competitors. Can you tell us a bit more about what sets you apart? I, I think ultimately what sets us apart is the way we approach the market. Um, we don't just advertise a box on a website and expect people to buy it without really understanding the motivation to buy the product. Um, in the United Kingdom, uh, the standards for storing uh, hazardous materials at best sometimes can be a little bit foggy. People might not know which way to turn. Um, so ASICOS have invested an awful lot of time and effort in providing the training for their teams in the UK to understand the motivation for a particular client to buy a product. And that's so important because our products aren't cheap. Um, you can still go online and buy a 300 pound box for a metal cabinet, but the motivation for the metal cabinet, what protection will it give you? What kind of standards is the product manufactured to? These are all concerns that initially the buyer wouldn't necessarily be thinking of. Um, but because of the levels of service that ASICOS provide, um, site surveys, uh, training for all the users, uh, understanding chemicals, trying to steer you down a particular path and training your staff to increase the awareness, buying a product through ASICOS is an experience. So we don't believe uh, it's... it's um, we don't really believe fundamentally that somebody should just buy something off a website without making a valued and calculated decision. So on that front, can you tell us a bit more about who your clients are? What, what kind of clients buy the Asicus products? Normally, in, in the United Kingdom, since we've been here since 2007, uh, we have a very varied client base from um, Royal residences through to uh, government premises through to military um, we have a very very strong presence in academia as you can appreciate because of the numbers of hazardous materials uh, students are regularly exposed to in a university we also have a lot of uh, pharma companies biotech companies who are looking to improve their uh, processes to raise uh, levels of awareness of safety for the staff and to improve the general overall conditions if you, if you think about a cabinet that you're using for storing hazardous materials, yes, there are hazards in terms of flammability, uh, potential flash of vapors, potential fires caused. But if somebody uses one of our products correctly and they adopt the right principles in terms of extraction, for example, that means the staff are going to have better health and the company can ride some of those nasty little uh, chemicals in the lab that could be carcinogens or mutagens. And, and having the right regime, using one of our products, considering all the main um, risks that are associated with chemicals, we, we can provide an overall protection for everything in the workplace and enhance those levels of protection for companies. And what's next in your product pipeline, Mark? One of the big challenges at the moment for a lot of businesses, not only in the pharma, academia, and biotech industries, uh, in general industry is lithium batteries. Um, there's a, an awful lot of lithium battery products used now by companies looking to enhance the design of the products, such as domestic appliances. Um, there's an awful lot of lithium batteries used in the micro mobility sector, such as scooters, uh, mopeds, e-scooters. Uh, 
And, and aligned with the specific power cell lithium batteries, there's an awful lot of uh, um, issues concerning the stability of the products if ever it becomes damaged. And those hazards uh, normally manifest in terms of very quick, very sharp fires where lithium can produce its own fuel, but it can also produce its own source of ignition. And there's not an awful lot of advice coming back from the lithium battery manufacturers. However, in the UK, lithium is a definitive hazardous substance as dictated by the cost regulations and also by DZIA. Dangerous substance explosive atmospheres regulations. So obviously your headquarters as a business is based out in Germany. And as everyone knows, I know COVID has become the new buzzword of what we're all doing at the moment. Before that, it was all about Brexit. <laughs> and it's soon become all about Brexit again as we you know, march towards what looks like a, a no-deal Brexit at the end of this year. So how will Brexit affect your business? What, what are your concerns? How are you guys going to cope moving into 2021 with Brexit done mm. by then? Good question. I mean, Brexit won't actually remove any of the hazards or uh, remove the need for people to further um, make allowances for hazardous materials in their premises. Um, Asagos as a business has done an awful lot of homework into their products and moving them into the United Kingdom marketplace. And we're very comfortable with what we've done. There'd be no dramatic uh, fundamental changes in the way we work in terms of legislation. Uh, a lot of the legislation for hazardous materials is long established legislation in the United Kingdom for many years. Our products are still manufactured, those certainly for the use of storing flammable liquids to the highest standard available in the world today. Um, we don't necessarily see any impacts of, of Brexit on our business. Nonetheless, we are increasing some uh, stock to be held in the UK to uh, expedite orders that are required a little uh, quicker than normal in the event of any delays with transport across the border. But we don't envisage any major issues. And, um, you know, we certainly put a lot of thought into the Brexit process over the last eight months. And, and I believe we have a, a very firm plan of how to deal with it. So finally, if people want to find out more information about ASICOS or to get in touch, how can they do so, Mark? We're always exploring new ways. Um, for the last 12 months, we've been running training courses every month uh, on uh, Zoom webinar format, which has been very good for us. Um, we have a lot of exposure to uh, our products on our online website at asicos.com. Uh, on there, uh, people can find the contact names of myself and my colleague, Les Day, who are both based in the UK. And, and also, one thing about the Asicos website, it has so much resource. We, we, Mark, you've been to our premises in Germany. Um, and it's a shame because I remember you came to Germany when we launched ASICOS World, which was a fantastic training tool for end users to uh, look at how we deal with hazardous materials in the workplace. And um, ASICOS do pride themselves on providing good information, solid information. We've just launched a gas guide, a 127-page gas guide, which will really help the end users define how to put safety protocols in for compressed high-purity gases. Uh, in addition to that, we have a fantastic training package. So that's all available online, and it's available through my colleague, uh, Les Day, and myself, Mark Whiteley. Um, my details are online, um, and we look forward to hearing from you. <laughs> Mark, as always, it's great to catch up with you, my friend. I'm glad things are going well for you this year, and um, good luck for 2021 and ahead. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Much appreciated. to the end of this latest edition of the 550 Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Colin Todd from CS Todd and Associates, Warren Spencer of Blackhurst Bud Solicitors, and also Mark Whiteley of Asicos for their valued contributions. You can read more on the issues raised here and others by visiting the 550 Matters website at www.fsmatters.com. 
We do hope you've enjoyed the content and found it useful. On that note, please do contact us if there are any particular themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag FSMpodcast. Do make sure you follow us on Twitter at FSMatters underscore MAG. As a reminder, the Fire Safety Matters podcast is live to view every fortnight on Wednesdays. Please do like and share the content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Fire Safety Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. All you need to do is enter the term Fire Safety Matters into your chosen platform search box. We'll see you next time.